0: Back to Check this, please. a podcast where we're rereading the webcomic Check Please because we hate ourselves and each other. Today we're going to be looking at 2.5 Providence Falconers, which came to us on December 25th, 2014. I'm Secret, and I'm joined here today by
1: who? Tomato! Well, we open on Biddy disclosing to his blog audience that he, like me, can't think about the future and, quote, doesn't even want to consider the phrase life after college until he's holding his diploma. And he brings up the fact that Jack and Shitty are graduating. Jack is somehow balancing senior stuff, captain stuff, and choosing the NHL team he'll play for, but Shitty is kind of losing it as he prepares to apply for law school. Biddy then goes on to talk about Jack's future and how he is talking to his agent, talking about contracts that end with a lot of zeros, apparently. Then uh, Biddy shifts gears by saying, who cares about Jack and shitty, right? And then starts talking about his experience on SMH, where he is no longer first line material, but is at least surviving... Uh, the more violent parts of the games that he's playing. So that's something, right? Apparently Jack is still working Biddy through his mental block and he's still coaching him through his tendency to shut down Jack coaching Biddy. I mean, Biddy says when he's not busy preparing for her career as a professional athlete, he somehow finds time to help me, you know, so magnanimous. Then Biddy's walking through Samwell, looking on his phone He, as we find out in the blog post, gets deliberately tripped by Georgia, who happens to be Jack's uh, potential future assistant GM from the Providence Falconers. Jack flirts with Biddy, kind of, maybe, by pushing his head down and pushing his hat over his eyes. Yeah, very great. Very romantic. Very good, Jack. And then we end with Biddy thinking about... Uh, the distance between Samuel and Providence and kind of imagining his potential future distance from Jack. And that's his trip.
0: So he starts off by saying that he doesn't even want to consider the phrase life after graduation until he's holding his diploma, which, yeah, you know what? He doesn't.
1: Well, this is something that we haven't seen that much of Biddy so far, but we'll continue to see as he goes forward. Let's call it he's not a planner. Especially. And you know what? Relatable. I don't want to think about life after graduation either. So fair enough, Biddy. But increasingly, I think it's necessary. You
0: have to have some sort of idea of what you're going to do after college. Especially since, at this point, he's not dating a millionaire. If he graduates college and he doesn't have a job and he doesn't have any source of income and he's not looking for a job and he doesn't have anyone to live with, I mean, he's just gonna end up living back in Georgia in his parents' house. It's kind of antithetical to the reason that he went to this school in the first place, which was to get away from that.
1: Oh, I fully agree. And I think that most people do have to figure out like how to navigate their adult lives without the aid of parents or millionaire boyfriend. But I do think that this is an interesting look at some of the motivations that, you know, maybe fuel Biddy in his decisions in later years. So I agree that he should probably start to think about the future.
0: But very realistic that he wouldn't. I'm older than Biddy, and while the economy was certainly not like real good while I was in college. It was still pretty widely understood by literally everybody that the education we were getting was extremely expensive and the idea that you would spend your summer doing things like having internships or indeed taking on multiple internships throughout your college career so that you could start to like build out your resume. That was a pretty... I don't know, widely followed piece of guidance among the people I knew. Yeah, he he is being like unnecessarily and possibly self-destructively passive in terms of not fostering interests, not further developing the interests he already has, not trying to like build out some sort of job history for him so that when he does apply for his first job, he has people he can get, like, a recommendation from. That kind of shit.
1: This is also my experience. I was in college at the height of the recession and graduated into a very bad economy, and so everyone was scrabbling all the time, I feel, at least in my experience. I'm thinking of a friend's boyfriend who... Graduated from college at a similar time as I did, had a slightly different family experience in terms of his family's like ability to give him money, but uh, but but was not super wealthy. But whose approach to jobs was extremely different from mine in that he just kind of did what he wanted and like could get jobs and didn't seem to like be super, super concerned about his ability to get jobs or what not getting a job said about him and his viability as a candidate. He just applied to another job and just like would get it. And I wonder whether Biddy's own expectations, besides being, yes, self-destructively passive, fully agree that that's a really great way to to describe what's happening here. I wonder whether looking at his dad's career or the sort of the men around him, I wonder if he feels that urgency. I don't know. Certainly he could or might not. I'm not sure. But thinking about Biddy sort of like faith that everything will work out is making me think about like other people I have known who who things did seem to work out. They did seem to just be able to like get jobs. That's not my experience. I wonder whether we can like think about his circumstances and, and how they may have impacted his lack of urgency or whether it's just like a, a coping mechanism for anxiety about the future.
0: I don't know. Yeah, I think it's an anxiety mechanism for coping with the future because, well, I guess a coping mechanism for anxiety about the future is effectively just like not even thinking about it. I don't think it's that he has some sort of like certainty that things will just work out for him. I think he is just not thinking about it, not engaging with it at all. Anyway, we obviously will be able to talk about this a lot more, especially as the comic starts to roll into like the end of year three and then throughout year four where actually this begins to become part of the text of the comic, but I didn't really remember that this sort of cropped up this early, that he, he did make this comment that's actually very true to his character
1: and true to his story. But people whose future he is very focused on, at least for a couple of strips, are Jack and Shitty, uh, which is interesting because as you pointed out, they're not graduating for like eight months. So this is pretty early to be thinking about their departure. Although of course they are making preparations for the next year. So I guess it makes sense that he's thinking about them.
0: Yeah. The only, the only thing I really have to say about this is that I was somebody who as a freshman made friends with the juniors, both in high school and college so to me, this is actually fairly relatable, because I do remember being at the beginning of my sophomore year and thinking, oh, no, these people I was friends with are now seniors. And I don't really know what it is to be in this part of my life without these people. But at the end of this year, they're going to be gone. And it it really did feel like our time together was fleeting and then actually, yeah, they graduated and my social dynamic changed a lot when, many of the people I was friends with left school. And then none of the people I'm thinking of, either people I was friends with who were two years older than I in high school or college are part of my life anymore. Because of course, then they went off to either college somewhere else or their adult life somewhere else. And I was still like a, you know, kid back doing the thing that they had left. What Biddy is thinking here is irrational but also to a certain extent sort of true and reflects the kind of bittersweetness of how time moves when you're in certain parts of your life, especially school?
1: There's a particular closeness that college, and especially if you're involved in a, in a certain like organization or something, which has a lot of time together, like a team or a club or a project that is really hard to recapture or sometimes hard to maintain once you're out in the world. So there is a there is a real bittersweetness. And I think it's interesting to think about when Gozi's writing this, right? Like she's writing this in her... I guess, second year of graduate school. And so she is now going through the process of having left this university setting, being in a different university setting, maybe going through her own kind of like changing early adulthood.
0: Yeah, one of the things that this comic does well is capture the kind of affect of being in this particular social place of like, you're at college, you're in school. This is the rhythm of a college career. It does that fairly well. So I do give it credit for that. And I think that this is one way expresses that sentiment. So then we have Jack and his fucking uh, NHL career. Like we go from Biddy's thoughts straight into his focus on Jack. Is he getting a contract or, like, an offer in this panel? It's part of the, the second page on the, uh, on the right. Is this somebody, like, handing him an iPad with a, with a contract on it?
1: I don't know whether – well, it's hard to tell, isn't it? Because we don't know who he's talking to, if it's his agent, if it's someone from a team, if it's – my guess is that he's not officially getting a contract yet. My guess is that he is talking to his agent or something and they're discussing like the details of what the the agent will offer as part of his free agent negotiation. That's what I would assume, but we don't know and we never find out because Biddy doesn't know what it is. He just just knows that like Jack is doing something businessy with an iPad in front of him. And I am not particularly privy to how negotiation works on like truly any level, but especially not professional sports. What I have read about it suggests to me that I would guess that Jack would kind of like set a certain set of expectations, which he would then kind of negotiate back and forth with the with the teams about, depending on their salary offer and their salary cap. But I don't fully know. Then
0: you asked about the number of O's they are offering. Do you want to build out on that or?
1: Well, we talked about this actually in preparation for this strip and what we figured out is that we don't know but we talked about a couple of different things thinking about who jack is he's a rookie he's a notorious flake and i don't say that to belittle his mental health experiences but flaking out the day before the draft or whatever which we don't know yet but are about to find out is not great it does not it does not speak to one's ability to take on the mantle of responsibility that for example you know becoming the face of the team might require. He is a lot older now. He seems to be much more stable. So there are other things, of course, to take into account. But that's something that we need to consider. And actually, Ngozi does talk about this in the blog post. On the other hand, he's got this generational skill. He's the son of a really famous player, and he's got name recognition, which are not nothing. He's kind of in this interesting position. We discussed a couple of different things. So let me just briefly overview. I looked up Sidney Crosby's entry-level contract because, as we have discussed, like, Jack is based partially on Sidney Crosby, I believe. Crosby's entry-level contract, which I will just say, as as you pointed out in our conversation um, before we started recording, Jack isn't taking an entry-level contract because he's over 25, so he's not actually doing the traditional draft route of being 18 and and getting drafted. Sidney Crosby's entry-level contract in 2005, which was a different time for both hockey and money. His entry three-year contract was $850,000 a season with the chance to double that with performance incentives. And that was dictated uh, largely by the league's new labor agreement, which you can, there was a thing to do about it. You can read about it if you want. Sidney Crosby's second five-year extension contract was like $43 million, so he made quite a jump. I will also say that the minimum NHL salary as of uh, the past couple years, so the not two thousand five, but like twenty tens, is seven hundred thousand dollars a year. Whoa, I said that wrong. Seven hundred thousand dollars a year. So, uh, so Jack is at least making that much money, probably more. Uh, Jonathan Taves' entry level contract, I couldn't find as easily. I didn't look as hard either. But uh, but he ended up signing like an eight-year contract soon after uh, as, as part of this like $84 million over eight years or something like that. So those are some reference points for, for generational players who are faces of the team on whom Jack is based. As far as Jack is concerned, in Kiss the Ice at the end of
0: this year, there is a moment where Shitty holds up his cell phone and there is a headline on it concerning Jack's having signed with Providence A couple years ago, like in 2017 or 2018, somebody blew that up and was able to read it and i remember seeing like legible like legible versions of it but when i went back to it today to double check what that number was and exactly what it said neither in the kickstarter volume nor on tumblr was i able to blow up the image in a way that it was like legible i remember it was something like he signs a 3 year two way I want to say it was $3.1 million contract, but the 3.1 is where it's a little sketchy. Jack is not being offered an entry-level contract, I presume, because an entry-level contract that you sign when you are 24 years old would only be for one year, and an entry-level contract after you are 25 doesn't exist. He, of course, at the end of this year, will be 24 turning 25 between the time he signs and the time he starts playing. So neither of these situations apply. It seems to be the latter. These contracts are usually not $3.1 million generous. They're usually like significantly less than that because these types of players are usually not amazing. The two way part refers to that He can play for either the NHL or the NHL team's AHL affiliate. Don't worry about it. It never actually comes up in this comic, so who cares? The idea that they would be paying Jack Zimmerman $3.1 million a year is fucking insane, especially when the way that contracts work is that he has the initial term of the contract to prove that he's able to perform the way they want him to. And then when the contract expires, they have to negotiate a new one. So the idea that they would be committing $3 million of their salary cap to an untested, untried player, whose reputation is, like Tomato Explained, one of not being able to follow through, and this is like a pervasive reputation, is absolutely like buck wild. If it is 3.1 or 3.3 or whatever over three years and it's closer to like a million dollars, I think there's still being, there is some, Competition for Jack, but I brought this up a couple times. What we end up finding out later is that other teams offered Jack more. He could have made a couple hundred thousand dollars more if he had gone with one of the other teams that offered him a contract. So it's not like the Falconers are outbidding somebody to try to get him by offering him this much money. The idea that this is the going rate for Jack Zimmerman is kind of, like, unbelievable. And the thing is, we are told constantly in the comic that he's, like, a generational talent and he is truly worth this much money. But the comic never really shows that. Like, he hasn't actually done anything or played that stupendously well he's extremely good obviously but like his team lost the frozen four last year and they're not gonna win it this year either and we've seen like real life examples of, of hockey players whose teams do and they don't go on and become like amazing nhl superstars so yeah this is sort of the start of jack's unbelievable hockey career being inflated to a point that is kind of absurd and you have to take it as like a romance fantasy for bitty wish fulfillment in order to understand like why it's functioning how it's functioning
1: i don't think any of us are trying to hold this comic to unreasonable realism standards but the comic is making certain claims about itself as a particularly in the paratexts and in interviews and so on and so forth about like what it's doing as part of that conversation it's worth thinking about what narrative is being built about the nhl and how does jack fit into it and why is jack being pursued by the nhl and i think the answer that i have in this moment is because he's biddy's love interest so like biddy always wants him or whatever or is about to want him he already is into it so too does the NHL, so too does the entire world. Like, through Biddy's perspective, because Jack is ultimately desirable, Jack becomes ultimately desirable for everybody. And, you know, I've read romance novels in my day, sure, that happens. But that does temper then the ability of the comic to comment meaningfully on realistic elements of the NHL, right, so it's like, it's hard to have both. And I don't know that the comic successfully does. All I have to say to that is
0: I believe the only romance novel I have ever read is Gone with the Wind and I read it when I was 13 years old and whatever problems it has as a text and we're not here to get into those the heroes especially the romance heroes in that romance novel Are a lot more flawed and complicated than these ones.
1: I've read so many romance novels. I've read a couple Amish romance novels. I've read a lot of gay romance novels. And uh, yeah, those heroes aren't particularly flawed or complex. Or, you know, sometimes they have like the one flaw that makes them, you know, believable. And I would say that Jack very much fits into that uh, category, except occasionally you get glimmers of great complexity and bizarreness. And so that's, that's what, yeah, that's what, uh, that's what really draws me to him. You know, he's no, who's the, who's the guy in that series of books that I read? Oh yeah. Christian gray. He's no Christian gray. You know what I mean? he has got a little more complexity than that guy. Well, I haven't read those. No, they're very bad. I read them because everyone at my old job was reading them and I read the first two and then I took a break to read a good book and then I couldn't read the third one. They're very bad. But Jack Zimmerman, yeah, more complex than Christian Grey. I'm on it, I'm going on the record. Here's my hot take.
0: Yeah, I have to tell you something, which is that this is not news to me. I came into this conversation pretty much aware that they were bad. I know I haven't read them. I feel confident in that assessment. Thanks for confirming.
1: You got it, let's move on. Yeah, so, and
0: also Shitty's applying to law school doesn't matter um so then biddy says who cares about jack and shitty right which is funny because like we do nobody's here for your recipes you piece of shit tell us about jack and shitty come on they're interesting characters
1: i think this is supposed to be funny but then i'm like how am I supposed to understand Biddy's relationship to himself and his vlog in this moment? I don't know. I don't fully know, but I will say that I really like this panel, though. I think it's like really clear, concise, and effective visual storytelling. I'm into it. I think it's great. Yeah, obviously it's supposed to be like meta and deconstructionist,
0: but it's also ironic because at a certain point, Jack and Shitty will just like be out of the comics, so
1: prophetic as well. Who does care about Jack of Shitty? I guess, not really Ngozi. And you know what, that's fine. That's fine. That's her prerogative. I do think it's, I mean, yeah, it's supposed to be meta, right? And you can you can feel the the sort of self, uh, self, what's it called when you're being mean to yourself? Self-deprecating tone in, you watch this vlog for Dazzling Recipes to find out if I'm still on the Sam'l men's hockey team. And I actually think this moment is really great because Biddy just gets sure and sure and sure of himself as the comic goes on. And this moment of self-doubt is is really, I think, funny and kind of lovely. I guess one more thread to pick up before we move on
0: to the real the real meat here is that Biddy is texting Dex about fixing the oven. I have nothing to say about it right now except that it this will become a recurrent thing. So pin it. Then I guess there's some flirting or something because Biddy makes this mention of he somehow finds time to help me. And it's like, okay, I guess the implication is he sometimes finds time to help Biddy because he's into Biddy. But actually, this is part of the captaining that Biddy says Jack is busy with earlier in the strip. Like, Jack is still leading the hockey team. He still wants the hockey team to win. He needs the people on the hockey team to play well so that he can impress people like George Martin. And they can offer him $3.1 million in, I don't know, hockey cash. Also, Jack was doing this for Biddy the year before when he very strongly didn't like Biddy. So I think the sort of leading, you know, oh, I don't know why, you know, oh, and then you find out it's because Jack is looking for reasons to spend time with him. That doesn't add
1: up for me. I'm gonna make a case for this because I'm into it, but it's definitely not how we're supposed to read this moment, I believe. So, you know, take it with a little bit of elasticity here. I mean, I do think Jack is into Biddy, for the record. Like, at least this is what the text wants us to think, and like, sure. And there are lots of things that we can talk about in terms of how and why that manifests, but let's, we don't have to do it right here. I think Biddy is good at a couple of things, at least, maybe more, but at least a couple. And one of those things is building narratives for himself about what's happening in his life that may or may not match the reality of what's happening in his life. For example, not thinking about what he's going to do after graduation, just putting it off. So this is a pattern with Biddy. He, he takes a lot of information and then he kind of like makes some kind of narrative about it and what it means about however this other person like feels about him. And that could or could not be related to like reality, depending on how you read the comic. I would say that this moment of seeing a perfectly normal, captainly set of behaviors, i.e., coaching you with something you're bad at so that you can win and reading them through the lens of oh I don't know why he's spending time with little old me or whatever is actually really evocative it really shows us something about how A, emotions can warp your perspective. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but like if you've ever had a crush on somebody, it can impact how you read into their actions. It can impact what you read into their actions and like how much attention you pay to their actions, how much weight you give their actions, which might just be like totally normal actions. Like someone texts you, okay. And you're like, oh my God, they texted me. Okay. You know? Okay. I will not ramble about this too much longer, but there's this Precursor to Modernism, if you're looking at the survey of literature called Psychological Realism, Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Courage, great example. And uh, sorry, everybody, but it's a good book. You should read it. Okay, anyway. Um, Who didn't read it like in fifth grade? Some people didn't read it. Better than Maggie colon Girl of the Streets. Anyway, enough Stephen Crane for us. That one I've never heard of. Oh, wait, yes, I have. Edmund Wright were to, you know what? Never mind. move on. (laughs) Okay, I'm not gonna get into Edmund White on this podcast. Yes. We can talk about Edmund White another time when we talk a little more. Okay, anyway, listen. I'm sorry that I'm like this, but just bear with me for a second. So the idea of psychological realism is that it's a precursor to modernism, which is a style of literature, which is known for, among other things, reaching into a character's interiority and recreating it on the page in some way so that you as the reader have access to the interiority of that character. Psychological realism doesn't quite do that. Like it's in between 19th century styles of storytelling and 20th century styles of storytelling. But what it does do is that it takes the perspective of the character who's point of view it's adopting, and it uses their perspective to somehow color or change the way that the landscape is described, the way that people are described, the way that things are interpreted through the narrative. And it's not quite as all-encompassing as a modernist approach, but it's pretty effective. And for me, this is what's happening in this strip, or one way of reading this strip is looking at Biddy's narrativizing about Jack and using his emotions to understand Jack's Actions which are actually understandable through like completely typical captainly means to everyone else on the hockey team This is just jack helping out biddy But to biddy it's this moment charged with romance and I actually think that this like is part of the queer experience Especially in primarily non-queer spaces, especially in media Especially during the period when this is being made moments charged with homoerotic or queer intent that are not immediately readable as such to people outside of the queer community is a really important part of queer media, like the history of queer media. And I don't think this is necessarily done on purpose, but I think that this moment, which is readable through multiple options, but for Biddy is, is like romantic in some weird way and is resonant with that history. That's why I like this moment. I think it is not meant to be doing something so complicated, but that is how it feels to me. And in my psychological, realistic landscape of check, please, that's why I like this moment. I think that's
0: a fine reading. The comic does attempt to effectively filter things through Biddy's perspective and take Biddy's positionality as the position of the comic, sometimes. I think as it goes on, that particular subjectivity deteriorates and it just becomes a textually essentialist project. So I think it's hard to tell when we are and when we aren't supposed to read things as just how Biddy perceives them, or if it's supposed to be read as this is how it is and i suspect that in terms of the jack bitty romance we're supposed to be reading it how it is this is all fine and good but one of the problems i'm having on this reread is that i'm not really Seeing a workable romance being built up between these two characters. If you showed me a couple panels of what's happening in these chucking clinics, that would probably be a lot more effective. But they happened before, and it wasn't romantic. We don't see their faces here. And yes, it's a nice shot, but they're like way far away you made the point that their body language in this particular panel is much different and more evolved in terms of their i don't know warmth or openness to each other and that's true but again this is letting jack's actions which can be contextualized in like eight different ways stand in for character moments that aren't
1: occurring. For me, this body language is not romantic. It's like fatherly. It's, it's not particularly romantic.
0: Oh, yeah. Actually, when I looked at this this afternoon, I literally thought, oh, Biddy does in fact look like a child. Like perhaps more so than he does when you are seeing him head on because he's much shorter and his hockey gear entirely dwarfs him to the point where, yeah, he, he looks like a little kid.
1: Uh, I'm not an expert skater. I, I like, don't skate on the ice, but I do skate uh, on roller skates. And so I know from experience of an unstable surface that one way to make sure you stay still is to angle one foot inwards. This is like one way that you can keep your balance. Because that he also looks like a child, it looks like when a kid is like scuffing their toes on the sidewalk and is sort of just like letting their, their legs dangle in weird ways. Um, so it actually also starts to make him look younger, even though it's like a real skating technique.
0: I would believe that the time that Biddy and Jack spend together in this space is the kind of thing on which a relationship between them could be built. I think the fact that it is happening in and of itself is a weak representation of that process, especially given like what the comic has given us up to this point. So the fact that it doesn't actually show what's happening between them is problematic for me. And I think the fact that the comic is implying through the way that this is structured, uh, I don't know, Jack's willingness to just do it is is the meaningful gesture rather than like the interactions they're having. That's what I'm trying to get across.
1: This is another symptom of the fact that this comic is pointing to romance tropes and pointing to sports narrative tropes, but here primarily romance tropes, rather than elaborating on those tropes like pointing to the fact of, the, of their spending time together rather than explaining how the time they spend together serves their character development, that's exactly what that's doing, right? Like it is part of romance that people spend time together and grow to know each other in more intimate ways, but we don't see it. There is the argument that maybe Biddy is filtering what happens in those moments because he is telling his blog audience, but on plenty of other occasions, we see things that he like doesn't explicitly describe to his blog audience. Presumably. So that doesn't really work that well as as a reason for why we don't get to see these conversations between them. So I'm not that convinced by it. I think that a a question that's worth asking, we don't have to answer it right now, but a question that's worth asking is what does Biddy's reading about the situation, or what are we being asked to understand? Like the fact that Jack is magnanimous enough to spend time with Biddy or whatever. What does that mean about Biddy's expectations of Jack? And what are we as the reader supposed to have expectations of him as a love interest? Like, how low is the bar, essentially? Oh, I mean, the bar for Jack throughout
0: this comic is, like, ridiculously low. I think we've said that before. Like, what the comic expects of Jack is, like, nothing. Like, the fact that he isn't dead in the ditch is is worth celebrating. So that he gets out of bed in the morning is, like... <laughs> He's our king. <laughs> a pretty, like, male-female, coded system of expectations, isn't it? You would expect in a, in a romance where it's two guys, their shittiness would cut both ways. And that's what I like about this ship so much. It's, it's relatable in that sense. It's like Biddy has very female-coded expectations for what the guy he likes would do, which is which is basically, yeah, just like not literally like screaming in his face. Speaking of which, Jack's other flirting in this strip includes this weird gesture where when he's walking away or running away with George... He's like, see ya, and then like smashes the bill of Biddy's hat into Biddy's face, which number one is just like really dick. It, it's, it's like, it's like this, this kind of like, I don't want to use the word violent, but this kind of like quasi-aggressive gesture is supposed to be considered like cute and flirty. And then, the thing is, to me, this kind of gesture reads as, like, something a sibling would do, or, like, an older brother, or, like, an older cousin or something. This isn't, like, antagonism coding for flirty behavior that I don't love seeing in this comic. And it's kind of related to the fact that the reason why Biddy ends up on the ground is because Jack and George, like, Deliberately run into him or like trip him, uh, like that's not nice. Like like causing somebody to like fall over. I know it's like a again like a like a really pat media trope that it's like oh somebody's not paying attention they're you know whatever and they like run into somebody and it's like oh you know like a meet cute but violently or something. I just don't like it. It like feels icky. I'm not just saying that to be contrarian.
1: I don't like it. What would make it a meat cute or whatever is it's if it's unintentional. I still don't love it. Like, I've fallen on my ass, and you know what? It hurts. I don't enjoy it, especially on concrete. Not fun. And it's but, embarrassing. Like, there's other people around. Yeah, it, it definitely can be. I think especially because Jack is, like, helping Biddy not be scared of being hit. This is, like, not... Great. The thing for me that ticks it over into like, oh, geez, not great is that it's deliberate. It's okay. Here's another hot take for all of you guys. It's not nice to trip people. In fact, it's bad. You probably shouldn't do it. It's not cute. It's annoying and rude and could actually cause injury, like not to get into my long history of injuries again, but like you can hurt yourself falling over. So I don't love this either. And I do think there's a case to be made if you're writing a fanfic about this moment and you... Want to write Jack as not being able to articulate or identify his emotion or something, and this is how he's channeling it, is through this antagonistic sort of like one-upmanship of violence. I'm there. But does the comic make that case? I don't think the comic does. I think I think you can read into it, but I don't think that's the tone that we get from this moment. It's, it's meant to be like cute and slapsticky, but unfortunately, I, I don't love it either. I think it's like not a kind. Thing. and it's a pattern of unkind behavior, even though now we're into it because Jack is like officially the love interest or whatever, you know, or almost officially, he's about to be the love interest.
0: I don't know if it's antagonistic. So if I used that word, it's because I've been trying to search for like the right vocabulary to work out what this moment means. It's aggressive. It's aggressive in the way that a lot of like masculine coded behavior is aggressive effectively to like, sublimate actual feelings. Jack will do this in other cases. There's a moment in year three where he's having like a quasi emotionally charged exchange with shitty. And then immediately he like picks up shitty and like throws him in a pile of leaves or something. Jack can't just like stand there and have emotions for more than a couple of minutes. He has to like counter it with like some sort of action or some sort of like aggressive gesture. Yeah, I don't know, this is the shit I hate. This is, this is toxic masculinity. That, like that's literally what it is. It's like the idea that like men have to channel their emotions through things like playing hockey and having hockey fights and doing sellies and tripping their love interest and throwing their friend into a pile of leaves instead of just being like, oh, it's good to run into you, hey.
1: Now, the thing is that I don't hate this. I think that it is likely that a character like Jack would have this impulse. I think what makes me frustrated about it is that it never gets questioned. He never gets called into accountability for it. He just keeps doing it, and it's fine and cool. That's what frustrates me. I actually think like, yeah, if this is the guy that Jack is, I believe he would do this. I wish Biddy had some kind of reaction to it or some kind of like frustration about it instead of being like, oh, haha, ha, should have looked where I was going. You're right. And there's the bonus point of the little comic at the head of the blog post where we see that it's deliberate, which makes me think that the comic is tacitly accepting this as cute behavior rather than as what it is, which is an expression of toxic masculinity.
0: Yeah, it's building out the case that Jack has a crush on Biddy. That's literally what it's doing. Right. So the person who actually suggests literally running into Biddy is, is George, Georgia Martin. Um, as Ngozi points out, her name sounds like George R.R. R. Martin, but also famed music producer George Martin, neither of whom have anything to do with this woman. The blog post describes her as a former Olympian, current assistant general manager for the Falconers, and probably Jack's future boss. What a general manager or an assistant general manager does for an NHL team, they are effectively the head of hockey operations. So they're basically like personnel managers the general manager is responsible for hiring everybody, including their assistant GMs, the scouts, the coaches, and the players. In hockey, GMs used to be like more powerful. It used to be like a front office that was entirely like GM decision pipeline. But these days, there's more of a trend toward like a delegation structure involving more assistant general managers. Not every GM has the same managerial style so it seems like the style of whoever the falx gm is and by the way we have no idea they're never mentioned it doesn't come up george seems to be functioning as like the only representative of the team but he's not like the gm gm Whoever that is seems like they have a pretty strong like delegation type of management style because George seems to be actively recruiting Jack Zimmerman. Most NHL GMs are actually coming from within the NHL or at least hockey somewhere. Very few are outside hires from other fields or even usually other sports. So the hockey GM pipeline is like a player who becomes a scout or a coach, who then becomes an assistant GM, who then becomes a GM. Obviously this is not most players' journey, but it is most GMs' journey. And this is different from, I think, other U.S. sports in some cases, but – It's also very different from like other U.S. industries where what you're looking for when you hire a manager in even specialist fields like increasingly the arts and higher education is managerial skills. In hockey, you're looking for somebody with hockey knowledge. And these people tend to make upwards of a million dollars it's like $1 to $1.5 million for somebody who's sort of like newer and more untested. $3 million is, I guess, like an entry salary for a GM if you have like a good amount of experience and then some like really big names make a lot more. GMs are also responsible for managing the salary cap. We mentioned before that hockey teams are only able to spend a certain amount of money in a given year on players' salaries, and they have to make decisions about that. And some of what, or actually effectively all of what GMs really do for hockey teams is they make decisions about how do we best spend our salary cap. And you have a couple of different models here. There are obviously a lot of hockey teams that have like a few exceedingly highly paid superstars. And that means that everybody else on the team is maybe like younger, less tested talent paid somewhat less. Other teams have more of a balance We can talk about this when we actually meet the Providence Falconers and we start to think out, like, what the fuck is this? George is the person who's making or helping the GM make many of these decisions.
1: I think it's really interesting that an adult person suggests tripping a 19-year-old for her future employee. Well, I think it's a little bit
0: implied in the strip where she's watching Jack doing something to Biddy's hat, like, I don't know, slamming his hat down on his brow or something, that she is noticing, like, I don't know, the chemistry between them. It's also clear that. Jack has been talking to George about Biddy because, you know, he's in love with him. I think there's something of an implication here that George, like, sees what's going on here. She, like, gets what's up with these two. But then later, like, in year three, when Jack actually comes out to George, she genuinely actually seems, like, initially sort of shocked. And then she's like, oh, I guess that makes sense. Regardless of whether or not it's because she can sense that Jack is horny or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. It is weird that she is like, what, you want to you wanna physically injure him? All right, so this blog post is actually really interesting. There's a lot of cool stuff in it, and we will cycle around to George shortly, but I want to make the point that she, well, Ngozi, writes a little blurb where she says, you invented NHL expansion teams, so you wouldn't have to get into the awkward position of having Jack play for a real hockey team with real people. If I mention random NHL teams and you're like, what? How have I never heard of that team? It is because I made a few up. Samwell University does not exist and neither do any of the following. And then she lists four teams. The Providence Falconers are of course, one of them. The Houston Arrows, the Seattle Schooners. She implies that she has a story to tell about them. No word of that since. However, they are the team that the Falcons beat to win the Stanley Cup next year of the comic. And of course, the Las Vegas Aces. In parentheses, she puts Kent Parsons team. And that's not the only time that he comes up in this blog post. In all caps, speaking of Georgia... And Gosey writes, while well, everyone was getting caught up in the hoopla generator that is Kent, a new challenger appears. Parson, I was busy drawing Georgia Martin. So I think this was cool to bring up for a couple of reasons. The first is we're kind of, I think, passively, or at least I am, tracking how is Kent Parson being introduced, and the fact that he's brought up twice here is an indicator that we're supposed to be paying attention to him. And also it's indicated here that people are paying attention to him. Something I've never really thought about before is that I think the tone of this while everyone else was getting caught up in the hoopla generator that is Kent Parson, but I was drawing Georgia Martin implies maybe that people are like erroneously paying attention to Kent Parson and they should have been paying attention to Georgia Martin, but you haven't yet introduced Georgia Martin because you were only busy drawing her after you'd already brought Kent Parson up. From this point on, just in terms of like extra material, etc., there is reams and reams of stuff in all of these blog posts and in all of these extras about Kent Parson. Georgia's drawn in some extra art... But it just genuinely doesn't seem like Ngozi is quite as interested in, like, sharing information about her or producing content about her. So, I don't know. I found this like a weird sort of passage to reread in retrospect.
1: The very nature of bringing Parse up in, these, in this blog post is itself creating more hoopla about him. Like, people aren't, you haven't introduced the character yet right so like people wouldn't be talking about him unless there was information about him being brought up so it's just this kind of like interesting tone when i think about the ultimate arc of the of course of parse within the story but then also like the way that conversation about Parse kind of goes it's really interesting to to already see the tension here i always read this all caps point as sort of jokey and self-aware that she had created the hoopla around him, and, and I think that it is. But you're right that it's also like there is the sort of implication that we should have been talking about George. But George hadn't been mentioned, and I don't even think in extras she had been mentioned. Like Kent Parson, there were sketches of him showing up. There were no sketches of George showing up before she came into the comic, as I recall. Well, yeah, I mean, the last
0: comic had you should have gone first in the draft, not Kent Parson. And then in the blog post it said, who is Ken Parson, probably my favorite character. And then there's something like several weeks in between those two comics. Like, yeah, obviously that's what people are going to talk about. I also agree that it wasn't actually like seriously admonishing people for like not knowing that another character was gonna be introduced. There just isn't like that much more about her. Anyway, the blog post continues. While every other team in the NHL is wondering if Jack will be a liability, i.e. did rehab in America really fix him and whether Jack's talent is worth all the extra media attention, George is like, fuck that. Jack Zimmerman, you are perfect. Fun fact, she used to be a scout. She prides herself in being able to pick them. Here we have some tension, which we have addressed before, which is that we are simultaneously supposed to believe that Jack is going to multiple development camps and is getting multiple contract offers, but also the Providence Falconers, who are not the highest bidder, are the only team that is really seriously considering him and George is the only person who believes in him. Despite the fact, of course, that two strips from now, Hoopla generator Kent Parson will show up to take Jack very seriously. You're, we're supposed to believe that everybody else is being really cautious about Jack. But in fact, at least three other teens were also on board and potentially willing to even pay him more.
1: I have thoughts about this. Okay. <laughs> They don't make any sense in terms of the narrative. Like, yes, this is a problem in the narrative. But if you look at it from a metatextual perspective, this is a clash of genres. This is a clash of the sports narrative genre and the romance genre. In the sports narrative genre, we need Jack to be the underdog. He needs to be overcoming impossible odds so that we root for him. But in the romance genre, he needs to be the all-perfect, wonderful love interest. So because he needs to occupy these clashing territories, we have to hold contradictory information about him in our head at the same time. And Ngozi actually like does share this information in very smart ways. It's always couched in a vague enough way and with enough genre savvy that we know who Jack is supposed to be in this moment, and therefore we can kind of adopt that strategy. But when you look at both of those positions at once, they actually don't make sense together. So this comic very much is relying, I think, on you being in the pathos of the moment rather than thinking about the narrative overall. And that's one kind of narrative strategy. And it leads to this tension between who Jack is supposed to be.
0: I think a sports narrative can also be a romance, not in the love and sex sense, but in the literary sense, medieval and early modern sense of heightened emotion and extreme outcomes stemming from commonplace situations.
1: I absolutely agree with you. And I think that with a little bit more massaging, this character could have not been in contradiction like it is possible for a character to be complex enough to hold all these possibilities right and for the world to be complex enough that people have different reactions to him this comic just doesn't quite get there. I don't know you can probably guess most of
0: my storylines but Jack is eventually going to need an executive confidant at some point and who else could be better than a woman in the NHL a person in a position where they're a minority blazing a trail to what extent does this pan out like yes Jack comes out to her and then he suddenly comes out publicly in the broader sense and she's responsible for organizing some kind of press conference around it the morning after. But that's the end of the storyline, effectively. She doesn't like do or say or have any more developed part in the process.
1: Yeah. I don't know whether this part of the storyline was impacted by fan response or not. I suspect it probably was. So we can talk about that as we get through year three and year four. But I think it probably was. So I don't know whether she was originally supposed to have a bigger part or just it through the process of writing got smaller. I don't think it really pans out. I think there's enough of a gesture towards it that again, if you're writing like a, a canon fanfic and you're kind of exploring what could have happened in the gaps that we don't see, there's enough there to, to write a story. But I don't think that story ever really makes it to the screen. And I also don't think that Jack really needs a confidant because as it turns out, other than a few insults on the ice, like everybody loves him and thinks he's perfect and it's fine that he's gay. And like he through the fact of his existence like dismantles all the homophobia of hockey so like he actually didn't need an ally at all did he it all just worked out anyway there are other characters for whom this doesn't seem to be the case but for jack everything seems to work out without him needing to do very much so uh or needing much protection in fact so it doesn't really pan out except in the broadest of gestures
0: yeah i agree i always thought that her role in the comic would in fact be plot-related, and that there would be more conflict or more tension over his coming out effectively. I really always read this as like an implication that the plot line over years three and or four would be about Jack coming out and George being in his corner or making decisions or something. To this point, it's implied here that the fact that she is in a minority position of being a woman in, like, a hyper-male-dominated field, especially in as high a role as she's in. Like, all the GMs in hockey are are men, obviously. Like, probably I didn't even need to have to say that, but...
1: And there... there I don't know how many GMs of color there are. I haven't done research, but I don't think there are many, if any. Yeah, I
0: think probably that is the case. I remember looking this up. I don't remember thinking about the racial makeup, but yeah, like they're they're all men. So the fact that she is a woman who is an assistant general manager is pretty significant. That context doesn't end up being important either because we never see it contrasted with somebody who's more of like a straight white man who has a different response to your point about the reaction. So the fact that it's her specifically that Jack comes out to is sort of meaningless in that direction. And then it's also meaningless in the sense that like Jack Basically, just decides, plus or minus consulting with Biddy briefly, that he's going to come out to George. And it does not at all seem as if he is only making this decision because of George. If you slotted in some other character or some other white, straight GM dude, it, it doesn't read as if Jack would have made a different decision. The thing with this comic that we're constantly cycling around is this question of, like, okay, so representation in X, Y, and Z, but, like, what are these representative characters here doing? And, yes, it is really cool to see a woman GM character. I think it's implied that she is a woman of color, but I can't actually call to mind any, like, text about it. I don't know. Maybe it's in the back of the Kickstarter book or something like that.
1: I'm going to briefly kind of, like, jump into an area of contention and we don't have to stay there. But I think this is one of the frustrating pieces of uh, the politics of representation in fiction that is not always effective because the fact of someone existing in fiction who is unlike other characters who've been in that piece like place in fiction or in reality is a good thing. Like, I think we both agree that it's pretty unequivocally a good thing. Like, it's a good thing to have more characters who are women. It's a good thing to have more characters of color. It's a good thing to have more queer characters. It's a good thing to have, like, whatever. Whatever group of people you want to explore, like, it's good to have more characters in more complex roles. But the fact of a character existing in a position where a person like that has not existed, whether in reality or fiction before, is not actually doing anything other than putting a character where there hasn't been a character before, which is itself a good thing, but it's not a lot. We've talked about this when we talk about Lardo. It's really good that Lardo's in the comic, but she doesn't do anything. And so it becomes this frustrating, oh, sorry, yeah? Well, in this comic, she
0: specifically asks Biddy, like, what's up? And Biddy says nothing.
1: Oh, 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 you're so right. Oh, didn't mean to erase Lardo's contribution to the greater check please aren't there. But you see what I'm saying, right? Like, it's really, really good to have these characters Yet because they don't have a broader more complex role within the comic like there's a limit to how what good happens because of their existence and this is something I really struggle with in my own life like what does it mean to write about different kinds of characters? What does it mean to write about characters who, have the same identities as I have that people don't write about? What does it mean to have characters who don't have the same identities as I have that people don't write about? Like, how do I, how do we navigate this as writers? Like, I'm not trying to take Ngozi to task for this. I'm just trying to point at this difficult tension, particularly in YA literature and in graphic novels, which are both areas with um, a focus on diversity at the moment. I think it's also worth thinking about when this comic was being written, This was at a time when the politics of representation were starting to be very much in the mainstream. The conversation around them was that representation was really important and it kind of hadn't taken that next step yet. So it's just in this really complicated position. There's also the fact that like sometimes you just want to populate a world with characters who are from many different backgrounds and you don't don't want to explore why it's different from other things because that's like a complicated and sometimes painful narrative. And that's also totally legit. It's because again of the paratext that this comic is changing hockey, that's where it starts to get tricky. And so if you don't contrast George with some, reality, if she just exists in a vacuum and there's not like some representation of the real hockey situation in the comic, then she becomes the representation of hockey in the comic. And then you are reinventing hockey, but you're not necessarily like doing a really effective commentary. So it just gets into this weird difficult area. That's why I think this that Georgia's position is is kind of hard and strange.
0: I wouldn't be making this reading if the text Attached to the comic said I just thought it would be cool if there was a woman in this role like if if that's all it said then there wouldn't be much more to interrogate but of course I was reading this around the time that the first couple strips of year 3 were posting maybe even just the first one that entire beginning to the story was constructed around the tension of jack and biddy are in the closet how is this going to combust in some way this tension has to be let out what's going to happen yes something happened i guess going back and reading this around that time for the first time, seeing this character and then seeing this very leading statement about the storyline concerning it being meaningful that this particular character is in this particular role, that is what sets it up to be frustrating. I think it's also worth mentioning here just because, I don't know, this is her introduction. A lot of people do headcanon this character is queer and especially Leading up to the end of year three, there was, I don't know, I think a certain amount of fic about George being in a relationship with a woman. But we now know that she is married to a man, which of course doesn't inherently mean that she's not queer or into women. But yeah, I mean, she's she's just married to a dude and he has a beard. So I guess that's awesome. There's
1: only one queer woman in this comic and uh it's not george canonically queer that we can absolutely say like yes it's definitely queer and i'm into these headcanons but I don't think that they are in the text, which is fine. That's what fanfics for. People should
0: write it, headcanon it, do meta about it, whatever. Like, go go crazy. But this is basically nope. everything we know about this character is contained in, like, the blog post for this strip and then some context down the line about her having a husband. That
1: obviously also doesn't mean she
0: can't be queer. But it's oh, not yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I think... Obviously, she could be, just like literally any of the people off screen walking through the panel or characters who never explicitly stated otherwise could be. exactly. But if you want to, you know, if you want to communicate to the reader that a character is queer and you're only doing it via, like one shot of their cell phone background one time, the decision you want to make is probably not putting in a husband. Yeah, exactly. That's all I'm saying.
1: I will just add that I looked up the list of current NHL GMs, not assistant GMs, but you know, the big kahuna. What am I saying? The the GM. Yes. Yeah, and and, uh, NHL GMs. Yes. And Uh, from what I can tell, there there are no men of color. They're all men and there are no men of color from what I can tell on this list. So that is telling you something about the hockey world. Yeah, so just for comparison's
0: sake, uh, to give some context, because we recently did talk about sort of like the NHL versus uh, other American sports leagues. Apparently, currently, like in 2020, there are two black GMs for NFL teams and there are four head coaches of color. It is a 17 year low and half the number of like two years ago, which to be clear is still not good. And nowhere near parity with like the actual players, let alone the world, but it's markedly different
1: from the situation in the NHL. I just looked this up. There is historically very, very few Black head coaches, and I don't think at the moment there are any Black head coaches in the NHL. And there are only 43 players, Black players in the NHL. So it's like really, 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 really low. Really low.
0: I have a few questions that are raised by this strip. One of them, I think, is something that we're going to have to think about, but the other two or three maybe we can talk out briefly here. The first one that I think we want to keep in mind as we read through is, should there have been this much emphasis on Jack's road to the NHL? We do get some stuff about Biddy here. We learn that he's improving a little. You know, his crush on Jack is developing to the point where he's sad about Jack leaving and I guess shitty also, but not really obviously because he never sees him again. But this entire comic, Providence Falconers, is basically just about Jack. And in fact, we get a lot of comic strips that are basically just about Jack. Yeah, I think something we're going to have to keep reading for is the question of, should this much about Jack's road to the NHL even be in this comic?
1: I will make a prediction, which is that if Ngozi hadn't kept telling us he was definitely going to end up on the Providence Falcons, yes, it would have been a worthwhile use of comic time. But because we know what's going to happen, I don't know that it is. And I think maybe some of that time would have been more effective, used in other ways. For example, showing us Jack and Biddy having conversations.
0: If there was going to be this much about Jack, shouldn't there have been, like, more tension over whether or not this would work out at all, and if so, where he was going to end up? Like, shouldn't some of the tension that's building toward the end of the year be about is Jack going to be somebody who can stay in Biddy's life? or? Like, because what happens in this comic is basically it's telling us right now, and the fucking blog post basically says it as well, that he's going to be on the fucking Providence Falconers, and he's going to be a 40-minute drive away, which, by the way, is like less than a lot of Americans commute in the morning. So it's genuinely like not far. It's just like, yeah, I mean, aren't you basically doing yourself a disservice by pretty much ending the storyline here and then continuing to portray the storyline as if we need to see the
1: process? I think it depends on what the goal of the story is. If the goal of the story is to keep readers in suspense, then like, yes, this is a foolish use of time. If the goal of the story is escapist romance, then I guess like... Having the tension and already know how it's it's going to work out feels sort of similar as when you click on a fanfic and it's like a slow burn, but the pairing is tagged or whatever. Like, you know, it's going to end in a particular way and there's a satisfaction in that. So I think if you think about it through that lens, that's what's going on here. Despite the fact that Check, Please is a fanfic, like actually Check, Please is not a fanfic. And so there's... There, for me, yes, as a reader, there's a, a bit of frustration of like, let me be in this tension. The tension is part of why I read stories. I enjoy it. Let me experience it. But for some people, that's not what they're looking for in a narrative. And I think maybe this is one of the, one of the reasons that there are multiple readings of the comic is because there's different ways of reading the tension, you know? The comic
0: picks and chooses when it wants to be what it is. It's getting very confusing, and it gets more confusing as it goes on, what you're supposed to take seriously and what you're supposed to just be like, oh, heart or whatever about. Because there are a lot of things that are not inherently resolved and are very much not wish fulfillment, regardless of whether or not they're like, done well, we are denied seeing Jack win the NCAA championship. We are denied Biddy having some sort of resolution with his parents until pretty deep into year four. We are never given the satisfaction of seeing conclusive ends to the story of what's happening with Biddy's other friends who he's so sad are leaving college. There are a lot of things that are just not wish fulfillment. I think a comic that was smarter about what it chose to build tension around could do it really artfully and really productively. Part of what I'm trying to think about is what would a better way to tell this story be? And these are my questions about it. On that note, here's number three. Biddy, at the end of this strip, looks at a a, a map. Let's just say it's a map quest, because why not? of how far Providence is from Samwell, and it's 40 minutes, which again is not that far. I mean, it is in some senses. Biddy seems not to have a car on campus, but, you know, he's from the metro Atlanta area. A 40-minute drive to him is nothing. Would it have been more productive or more advantageous for check please, if Jack had not ended up so close... Like, what if he had been further away? Or what if he had ended up with, like, a less friendly GM?
1: I think that those options would have required more work on the part of the comic in the sense that it would have to do more showing of Jack and Biddy's relationship developing instead of doing what it does, which is, say, these two... They'll get together and then they're together. There's like not a lot of that work done. And so I think in terms of storytelling, it would have, yes, probably been a more effective story that would have been more about like Jack's role in the NHL and identity and like actually about the NHL and about the realities of being a player. But I don't think that's the project that the comic is really interested in, right? Like I like I agree that that would have been probably more meaningful for its stated goals of unpacking the NHL but I don't know that despite that being what the comic is about like I don't know that that's actually what Checklist is about you know what would have been really interesting is if he ended up at the Las Vegas Aces and then that would have been like quite a time but that's what fanfics for but my
0: point on this is like if Jack hadn't been like you know adjacent to the comic for all of years three and four, but especially three, and he wasn't popping in constantly. I think that would have been better for the comic, not even in terms of like developing the NHL. I mean, BD probably would have been more developed, their relationship probably would have been more developed. There would have been a source of tension. And again, draining of tension out of this comic is like a huge problem for it, where it's just like every possible obstacle to Biddy getting what he wants is removed. Like he doesn't have to work for his relationship with Jack at all. It falls into his lap and then Jack repeatedly advances it. And then at the end, they're just together forever something to challenge this relationship that could not have been resolved within a matter of like three strips would have been really helpful. I also think that a lot of, again, we're like a year away from this, but a lot of screen time and a lot of like comic strips are wasted on getting to know this like group of like courtier characters when we don't even know like the first group. So that's kind of why I'm positing this. Or if the GM had been a slightly more antagonistic character, that would have created tension in a different way. Even though year two is really good, I feel like one of two things is happening here. Either... The comic is just giving us everything that we want, and it's not even invested in, like, really telling a story. Or
1: it's setting up a story that was going to be told, but it then wasn't. We'll talk about it, but I lean more towards that second category for various reasons. Yeah, I mean, I I do as well, but... Given the story that plays out
0: on the page, I just wonder, like, you know, why did Jack have to end up on a team that was, like, the most immediately accessible team? Actually, I guess that would have been the Bruins.
1: I think, again, this is the question, what is this comic trying to do? And we'll just have to keep thinking about that as we go. And I think it changes strip by strip and it changes arc by arc. Actually, I think that's part of the problem is that its goal is not consistent. And again, it's being made over like seven years. So fair enough, as you change as an artist, so does your work. And when it's the same project and you don't get to go back and do it again from the beginning in a second draft, like that's tricky. But yeah, I think we have to ask like, what story is central here? I think again, we have to think about its relationship to the fandom and it's sort of like goal in creating a certain kind of pathos and experience in the readers. I think that that is more central to its aims than the story that it's telling logically, like the the logical cause and effect or even the narrative stakes building. Like, I don't think those things are actually central. And so I think that's why this is happening in a frustrating way. But I agree with you, like, those are both good options for how the story could have been more about character development than it is. So then I guess my final observation about this comic is
0: that I think this is the first time the comic really crams a lot of different things into one strip, by which I mean it like bounces around. So it starts with the vlog, and then it goes to, I don't know, shit about like what's going on with Shitty and Jack, and then it talks about what's going on with the team, and then it shows checking clinic, and then it shows the actual scene that's like the thing that's happening in the comic. Then it ends in the library with Biddy and Lardo talking. So we've got basically like, I don't know, what is it, five different locations here? Library, bridge, ice, house, Biddy's room, yeah. I feel like up to this point, the comic has pretty much stuck with a formula for the most part of... Biddy's vlog introduces like a very sort of narrow, truncated scene. Hey, I'm going to blank. And then we see blank. I feel like from here on out, we start to get a lot more of these strips, which try to cram a lot of plot beats into a single installment, rather than being like one moment in time. And of course, we... get more of those but I feel like we start to see a lot more of these like bitty slate of recent updates.
1: A long time ago I don't know how many episodes ago I talked a little bit, probably too much about how Ngozi Leverages summary as a storytelling style. And I think that this is an example of that being taken to the next logical step and that it will continue to be used, because what do we actually see in the strip of scene work like if we're talking about narrative craft, which, you know, I have a suspicious eye towards because A lot of the axioms about what makes good writing actually just serves a very particular kind of storytelling. And I don't think you have to stick to those things. But if we look at like what the actual scene work is here, there's almost none. The most scene work that we really see, as in we see people talk and interact with each other in meaningful ways, not just Biddy recounting it, we see Georgia knock over, Oh, sorry, we see George knock over Biddy. We see Jack do the little hat thing. And then we see Biddy look at his phone while Lardo says, what's up, Bits? and uh, And doesn't say anything else. Even in those conversations, there's not that much happening even the introduction of George is a kind of summary, right? Because we don't learn very much about her. We don't get very much in this moment. This is an example of the kind of thing that I was talking about when I started talking about Ngozi's use of summary. And I think that this becomes a style that she increasingly relies on, as you said. And I don't know that it really serves, like it serves a purpose and the purpose is to cram in a lot of information. I don't know that it serves the kind of storytelling I like, which tends to be very character focused. There's not that much character development happening here. I think this is related to the cast growing. Well, not in every single
0: strip. In year one, for the most part, we had a cast of like five characters and they were all on the same hockey team. And most of them lived in the same place. So it was very easy to center things around this relatively limited group. But the more people you start to have in this strip the harder it is to populate all of them within the same installment. And sometimes you need to just like pull in different plot lines to keep the reader aware that they're going on or give them an update. And focusing on single moments doesn't serve that necessarily so well all the time. George is somebody who's going to be only interacting with Jack, and it so happens that while they're on a run, they bump into Biddy. She's not going to be, like, hanging out at the house. So as the story starts to get more complex, and as there start to be more characters, you need to start to do this more often.
1: I'll also say that there are storytelling techniques in which you can have a very large cast and rotate in and out of their perspectives or make sure that time is given to, like, very intimate conversations, but you give up other things in service of that because no piece of fiction can be totally comprehensive. You can write a novel that's, like, 3,000 pages long, but nobody's going to read it. There are, like, ways to get around this, but I think because Check, Please is, like, tied to Biddy's perspective and then also has a desire to be fairly comprehensive in the way that it's telling the story in some ways, although in other ways it's very willing to elide information— Uh, it's harder to do that. For example, something you could tell a comic that's entirely told in conversation, but that would be a different framing device than Biddy summarizing his life for his vlog, and it would lead to a different kind of story. So I think the vlog framework is part of this problem. Well, as we start to
0: go on in this year, and especially as we start to get into three and four, the perspective does detach from Biddy, like increasingly. Never entirely,
1: but it will. Yeah, but it never totally detaches from this I don't know how to fully articulate this and I won't go too into it because we've been talking for a long time. There is i sense and I and I would have to do some more thinking about how to best find evidence for this, but I for me after reading this comic for 7 years, I sense that there is a desire on the part of the narrative and maybe of the author to very much control the information that the reader has access to and of course this is also obviously influenced by like Ngozi's relationship with fans and the way she uses social media and whatever right but for me this comic very much has like a a desire to drip out certain kinds of information when that information is not made available you are supposed to imagine things in its stead but within a very circumscribed set of circumstances that the genre suggests. Even when the perspective becomes detached from Biddy, it's informed by that style of reading that we've been taught thus far, right? Which is like trust the framework that Biddy is offering. And there's a circumscribed sense of what that narrative is willing to engage with, if that makes sense. So I have to kind of like think more about how to talk about that. But that sense of control is, part of the limitations of the story because the world feels full but it actually doesn't feel as expansive or like there's as much room in it as there could be if you were telling a different kind of story with a different kind of framework. Did I just say anything? I feel like I tried but I don't know that I succeeded. No comment. Okay well on that
0: let's uh let's call it next time we'll be looking at 2.6 women's gender and sexuality studies 120 slash history 376 women food and american culture i've been secret and you can catch up with me on tumblr at camilliar c-a-m-i-l-l-i-a-r or s-k-r-t-o-m-g
1: or i'm on ao 3 as familiar and you can find me on Tumblr at tomatowrites.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. And you can find our podcast on checkdisplease.tumblr.com, on Podbean, and on Spotify. Great. Well, uh, things, are, things
0: are just getting increasingly fascinating from here.
1: Great. I'll see you next time. And then the time after that, I'll certainly be losing my mind. So get ready, everybody. I'm lie Bye. down in a ditch. Okay, all right. <laughs> Bye. Do
0: you wanna say goodbye to me or?
1: Oh, I thought I did say goodbye. I'm sorry, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Bye. Bye.